You're listening to Transplaner RPG, an all-transgender, people-of-color-led, dark-fantasy actual play channel set in an original non-colonial, anti-orientalist multiverse. The Chaos Protocol is our second main campaign and stars Valiant Dorian, Kai Kay, and Sam Starr as players, with C. Thomas as the producer and Connie Chong as the game master. Transplaner RPG is sponsored by Explain Trade, a negotiation skills training consultancy whose director, Dimitri Opines, has asked us to say, and I quote, Please sign up for Transplaner's Patreon, because at some point people will figure out he's a cisgender white guy failing upward, and then he'll be too broke to sponsor us. We love you, Dimitri, and thank you so much for supporting our work. Arc 2 is proudly sponsored by HeroForge, a free online character design application that lets you make and order your very own custom TTRPG minis. Their character creation tools are rich and deep, with facial customization, animal companions, action poses, spell effects, hundreds of clothing options, and nigh-infinite color choices. Get a color-printed mini, unpainted premium plastic, bronze minis, color standees, or even your very own digital STL files for printing at home or use in virtual tabletops. To see their tools in action, go to Hero Forge Minis on Twitter and search Artemis. They made a mini of Nova's very own Hand of Fate, and she looks good. Check out Hero Forge today at heroforge.com. Content warnings for this episode may include grief, death of loved ones and family, complex and complicated relationships, descriptions of food and drink, romance, memory loss, and trauma. Arc 2, Episode 5 choke down tears from carved inside an empty urn by connie chong thirty minutes after strike team nova's fateful summons naim zaran is crying thick bitter tears fall down his dark cheeks staining them with salt he watches Zainan's back vanish down a corridor. That tense, angry back like a clenched fist, like a suffering heart. Their own heart pounds in their chest. Alive. 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 Zainan's alive. Relief crashes into him like a tidal wave. He slumps against the wall outside the dining hall and lets the tears fall. Three days, two nights, and 15 hours after Strike Team Nova's fateful summons, Amaru Hendrix is making coffee. Two sugars, two creams, freshly brewed in a paperboard cup, just the way Lumira likes it. He stands outside the dustiest stacks of the library, breathing deeply to summon the courage and composure he'll need for the interaction ahead. But before he can step forward, the sound of taloned feet greets his ears, and Elsbeth comes around the corner. Before she can even ask Zem what Z's doing here, Amaru's nerve is gone. And so is Z. Five days, four nights, and eight hours after Strike Team Nova's fateful summons, Cove is making an offering. They kneel before Sing's statue, head bowed, chin tucked. The Hall of Heroes is empty. So is Cove. Her bright, emerald eyes travel to the well-tended altar, the brass plate, his gifts 
reaching into the sleeves of their armor, Cove deposits an offering of their own upon the shrine, something she would have given Sing upon their successful return from their first May Day mission. A hand-woven bracelet of red thread. Seven days, six nights, and 19 hours after Strike Team Nova's fateful summons, Ash is peeling an orange. On the day Strike Team Phoenix receives their second May Day mission, the Syndicate is bustling with activity. The kaleidoscopic offices of mortal resources float amid pale green skies, rearranging themselves like levitating puzzle cubes. Stamped paperwork flies through translucent slots. Keys are tapped, abacuses strummed, brushes wetted. We see a brand new agent being onboarded, perched atop a glass chair on a glass floor above MR's obsidian lake. Maroon tresses sweep past this newcomer's medium brown skin. His clothes are the picture of elegance. A loose button-up, exposing a lean chest, a dark corset, black pants, long boots, gems of gold and ruby. A wide-brimmed hat sits low across golden eyes. He takes the pen, offered by mortal resources, and considers the contract floating before him. Thank you, patrons. We sweep past the lakes of mortal resources, the training fields, the farmlands, the libraries, the health centers, the archives, the gyms, the greenhouses, the clinics, and we pull into an office. Not just any office, the office of a hand of fate. Lucy, patron saint of monsters, sits behind a jagged desk of igneous stone. Behind her, a mural depicts a beast with eight heads, each more terrible than the last, holding 16 weapons in her hands. The limbs fan out behind her head in a nimbus of vicious light. Lucy lazily summons Strike Team Phoenix's oracle and begins to brief them on their second Mayday mission. But this story isn't about Strike Team Phoenix. Not yet, anyway. It's about the Strike Team, the Chosen One, left behind. Starting with Zynanesh. Zynan. The interminable hallways and countless rooms of the Syndicate are ever-changing. And for some fate-forsaken reason, Lucy's briefing rooms have been placed directly across Artemises. You sit on the bench outside your hands office, waiting to be called in, and you notice a half dozen strike teams marching up and down, up and down the corridor in front of you with lively purpose. It's apparently a busy day, but you, so far, are alone. How are you biding your time as you wait for your Mayday mission briefing? Since he woke up, very promptly, very methodically, He knew what today was bringing. Fate told them what today was bringing eight days ago. So he is ready for a mission. He's been cleaning his fingernails and just feeling the last of this version of existence, this one between everything and nothing. Mm. You are examining your fingernails and you don't see, but you do hear and sense across the hallway the door to Lucy's office opening and stepping out the very familiar boots of Strike Team Phoenix. 
Zainan very quickly tips his hat like further down and sinks deeper into the chair, trying desperately to go unnoticed, but he's a large, all black man. (laughs) And unfortunately, the all black outfit and the hat are very distinct. Only one agent in all of trans wears the same kind of repertoire of charcoal clothing as you do. And unfortunately for you, Naeem is the first to exit. You are positive, positive Naeem sees you, despite how much foot traffic there is between the two of you in this corridor, but he doesn't acknowledge you. He doesn't even look in your direction. Instead, they turn their robes billowing sharply around their shins and they stride down the corridor with a sense of determined purpose. Cove and Amaru follow closely behind. A single green eye just peers out, seeing, I think, just the flutter of their beautiful robes. And he just catches a glimpse of it and then immediately, more intensely, goes back to cleaning his nails and trying aggressively to go back to thinking about what's going to happen on this mission and, and reciting the lines and the pages from within the Transplanter Reification and Nourishment Syndicate's handbook. Yeah, you wrench that eye like back down to your nails, but before your gaze breaks away from Strike Team Phoenix, it is not Naeem's eye that returns your look, but the ice blue gaze of Amaru. A question and emotion behind it, but then shielded. And Amaru and Cove both turn and leave following Naeem. And it's actually Ash, whose boots you notice in your peripheral vision, standing a couple of feet in front of you, who pauses. This newest member of Strike Team Phoenix who had replaced Numira, looking at you with that same flat, curious expression they're always wearing. And it almost looks like they want to sign something at you for just a brief second, but then their oracle whisks into existence around their face and pulses rather insistently. And they let out a sigh and turn and follow Naeem. Zainan had raised a hand to sign something to Ash, but had not gotten through the whole thought of even what to say to this person that he doesn't even really know, just kind of like, hey, I guess. But I think by the time he realizes that he just even wanted to say hello, because he hadn't done that, they were gone. Mm Mm-hmm. They're gone, along with your ex. We follow Strike Team Phoenix down this busy corridor, through these throngs of people, and push around a corner to find Sayer. Sayer, how are you making your way towards briefing room eight? With the most haste, the patron saint of mortals waits for no one, and he knows that very well. Eight days ago, his creator told him that we were to be the bastion of hope, that our strike team is to rise after everything. I won't fail her. Both of them. And Sayer marches, his boots clanking against the floors of the trans hallways, his hands kind of twitching across the hilt of his crescent blade at his waist. Like an unanswered prayer, he just keeps fiddling and twitching against the edges of that leather wrapping, heading towards the meeting room. Yes, you round the corner. You see this surprisingly busy hallway as a bunch of other strike teams are presumably also getting their next orders. But among them, the strike team walking in your direction that stands out is Strike Team Phoenix. 
You see Naeem leading the pack, looking focused, determined, and slightly bitter about something. And Kov and Amaru are trailing behind him in the middle with Ash at the very end, glancing over their shoulder at something that the crowd swallows. And the chatter of their group as Phoenix confers amongst themselves is translated simultaneously into syndicate sign language for Ash by their oracle. Mm. And as soon as her sharp emerald eyes find you, Cove lights up like a firecracker. She quickens her pace. She pushes past Amaru with a desperate viciousness, lighting up her eyes even past Naeem, beelining it in your direction. Sayer mutters, not this, not this, and just puts that mask back up and attempts to not even acknowledge that gaze. He's got a job to do, and he does not have time for distractions. Cove plants herself directly in front of you, spreading out a strong stance, crossing her arms over her plate armor and says, Sir, here to tender your resignation? Agent Cove, I have a mayday mission to be signing myself for. Please, let me pass. <laughs> you know, if I were you, I'd be hanging my head in shame for letting the chosen one die under my watch. But then again, it never would be me. I never would have let it happen. Sayer feels the anger burning inside him. Cove! And something lights up. That viciousness flares in her emerald eyes. She uncrosses her arms as she takes a step forward, bumping herself against you. You're both big. You're both muscular. You're both solid. And for a moment, you feel that anger and you, you see it on her face. She wants this fight to happen. She's been angling for it for two months. She wants to go now. She says, yeah, what? Mad because I'm bright? Sayer lowers his antlers like a buck ready to duel. And as he snarls and he feels the heat, he feels the sparks ready to tender the exact violence that he was enacting upon them every instance of their meetings in previous moments. Then a wave of white flashes in front of his eyes, bright pink eyes, beautiful, beautiful white mane. And he feels this mask falter. It can't falter. Asian Cove, I forgive you. Cove freezes and then flinches back as though slapped. Her mouth hangs open. She has no idea how to respond. It feels like tar in his mouth as he says that. Words that he does not mean. And he glances to the rest of the strike team that are undoubtedly here for this exchange. Agent Hendricks, Agent Ash, Naeem, sir. I will take your leave. And Sayer abruptly marches forward to meet at the front of the office. In your wake, you hear Amaru saying to Cove, he's not worth it, Cove, just let it go. And Naeem placing a hand on Cove's shoulder and saying, drop it, Cove, we've talked about this. But Cove doesn't say anything at all. And as you leave her behind, all she can do in response is turn her head in profile view, looking at you, that emerald eye glimmering with something deeper than confusion, deeper than shock, a kind of abject, who are you? Lumira, you 
are kneeling in the Ionian grove. The waterfall splashes against the tranquil surface of the pond. The sweet smell of hyacinths drifts across the grass, rustling against your face. Here, in the darkness of the woods, everything feels sacred, everything feels possible. And you are trying, you have been trying, with hope beyond hope, to recall that name of that place you went to the last time you were here, that place with its deep jungle and watery cove and mechanical moon, that home. The name has slipped away from you. You've been unable to offer it to Elsbeth, but maybe here, back here, you can find it again. How are you attempting to recall this name? Lumira is pacing frantically back and forth, and she's tapping her left hand, her gilded fingers slapping against the robes of her coat as she's continuously recounting the steps that she took and trying her hardest to recreate that that feeling. Artemis, Artemis said, sometimes the grove takes her elsewhere. But how does she do that? I was underwater, and then I was reaching for something glimmering. It's the water, of course, it's the water. And Lumira starts to practically strip herself down to just her underwear, essentially, underneath her uniform and wades back into the water slowly because it's still cold at her toes and her ankles and her calves until she gets up to her waist and she's numb to it at this point, which happened rather quickly, but she takes a deep, calming breath and completely submerges again. And Lumira, when you resurface, your eyes fall upon the Ionian Grove. Fuck! Okay. Lumira? Artemis? Over here. And Artemis is standing next to the waterfall, I think, kind of haloed by the water. And they're looking down at you, not from the direction of the office that you had walked in the first time, but she's still there. You were under for quite some time. I was just... I keep trying to find that place. I I told you the name of it, but I cannot remember it now. And things just don't get forgotten once you learn them, not with me. Am I losing my touch, Artemis? Lumira, who taught you to doubt like that? Come to the shore. And Lumira rises up out of the water, pushing all of her hair over to the side and wringing the water out of her curls as she comes out. Artemis comes down the rocks across the waterfall, stepping almost gently like a deer, like somebody floating through mist through space on their way down. And they reach you and 
I think they actually take off that kind of sheer sash that's thrown over their shoulder and pass it over to you for you to use to dry off with. You don't have time before your mission briefing to go get changed, Bumira. You might be late. Who am I if I'm not just barely on time, right, Artemis? No, you're always three to five minutes late. I would not say that you're always always on time, Bumira. To be fair, it... Time... slips from me. Often. Especially now. And Artemis takes a seat, I think, on one of these larger, mossy boulders. Steeples her fingers, unsteeples them again. Looks at you carefully. Memory is a fickle thing, Mumira. Especially when matters of oblivion are involved. When Oblivion claims something, it claims every part of it, the memory included. I have lived for a very, very long time, but I can never forget. I wrote memory into my own skull by force. And Artemis moves to the tattoo at the back of her head, this concentric circle with many, many layers, many lines, many languages, all made of laurel leaves wrapped around the back of their head. They touch a gentle place. So you need to find something to write with so that you do not forget what I'm about to tell you. And Lumira frantically pats her self down for a second and looks around for scrambling in the sand practically over to her boots that are just a little further up towards the shoreline and pulls her boot dagger out of the sheath that's just tucked over into the side of her thigh. I... I... Do you remember what I gave you? The first thing I ever gave you when you were eight years old? And with her gilded fingers, she instinctually reaches down to her pocket watch. Hmm. Yes. Write it there, and you will never forget it. And she flips it open, those hands still stuck in that same time, but the number is just a little faded at this point. She flips over to the other side. Dagger at the ready. T. And she begins to carve. U. N. G. A. L. Tungle. And Artemis smiles. A rare, real smile. You haven't lost anything at all, Numira. Numira closes her pocket watch and holds it tight, almost white knuckling around it. But I think for the first time in a long time, Lumira returns that same smile. Genuine, bright, sparkling, just like before. Thank you. No need to thank me. And Artemis holds out a hand to help Lumira up. She'll take it. Come. We really will be a few minutes late. And you have a mission. Technically, if I'm late walking in with you, 
Is that like a hall pass? Don't push it. Just asking. Artemis's office appears as it always does. Sparsely decorated, earthen, organized. It comes as a surprise to both you, Sayer, and you, Zynan, when the door opens and both of you find Lumira already inside, sitting across the desk from the patron saint of mortals. It is a short affair to step inside, close the door behind you, and take up your own seats across Artemis. And as always, the viewing bay to your side reveals a vast, dense, mist-swaddled wood, pine trees bristling like emerald teeth. Good. You're both here. Come in. Hmm. Yes, sir. Zynan kind of takes in that Lumira is already here. He sat in the hallway for a while, and he spent a lot of time in this office over the last couple of months. Time, you know. But he didn't expect that, and he's kind of going through his memory going, how did how did she get here while I've been sitting here? But still, with the slightly confused working it through expression on his face, he does walk in and kind of incline his hat to both of them. Sayer is also confused. He thought he'd have more time, maybe, to talk to Zyne and to know how he's fared this whole time. But that'll have to wait. Mission briefing for us. The hand doesn't wait. And Sarah takes a seat. No, the hand doesn't wait. Artemis turns her gaze away from the grove beyond the window, and she faces the three of you, your party. Her eyes linger over the fourth seat, empty, and a small frown twitches at the corner of her mouth. <clears throat> Strike Team Nova. Before we begin, I must make one thing very clear to you all. So please listen closely for nothing else in this debrief. Listen to this. You can refuse the call. Tell me now and I will reassign all of you bed rest. I will negotiate with the Prime Oracle. I will negotiate with fate. No. We get a call, we answer it. We're striking Nova. We're here to help with the Mayday missions. We're here to help people. Lumira just nods. The choice is yours. Very well. Let us proceed. Syndicate business first. As you might have noticed, Strike Team Nova will not be assigned a traditional fourth member to fill your ranks. It is fate's will at this juncture. I am certain you're all aware of this abnormal ruling, but the Syndicate is changing alongside this new protocol. I trust that the three of you will be able to carry out this mission without issue? Yes, sir. Of course. This gives Zynan pause. He's been at this for a decade. This has never happened. Artemis meets your gaze. Steady. Trust in her will. Good. Then we'll begin with your mission. Number 023377. The City of Heaven. Local name... Well, that is not exactly on file at this juncture. The City of Heaven is one of three interwoven worlds that comprise a planar system known as the Sister Realms. The other two are the Mortal Realm, known as Yalan, and a place called the Underworld. But don't let the uh, title of city fool you. This is a plane 
in its own right. The RSA reveals a Class S Level 5 plane with a charted death of 0.5% vibrancy of a uh, mist. And at the word mist, Artemis glances at your oracle, which I think is bobbing on the table on her desk for a moment, and her brow kind of furrows just a little bit. Usually the oracles provide a more resolute vibrancy reading on their RSA scans, but... And whatever thought Artemis is having uh, eventually trails off and kind of dies in her mouth. Uh, they chew on the bureaucracy of it all for a moment before turning back to the three of you. Questions so far? You said it's three planes? Yes. Your mayday call is coming from the City of Heaven itself. So I will remind you all that despite their interconnected nature, the City of Heaven is the only place that you will be visiting on this mission. Leaving your assigned plane counts as abandoning your mission and is paramount to failure. Yaolan and the Underworld are their own realms. Another strike team will be assigned if transplanar assistance is necessary. And you said covered mist? That is what the RSA vibrancy reading is outputting. Mist. Like clouds or like... You can ask your oracle. Usually we get a charted depth vibrancy that includes, for example, what you might have found in your previous mission in the Wild Sea was just green. Turned out to be a world made of leaves. Not sure exactly what mist means, but... Sayer chirps up hearing all of this, and he says, This is an S-rank realm, therefore uh, it is highly populated. Uh, what can we ex expect over here? The, the name Heaven uh, insinuates, uh, if we were to listen colloquially, uh, celestial entities? Yeah. Very adept, Agent Sayer. Our archival data on the Sister Realms is fairly up-to-date. The planes themselves are populated with countless gods and demons, most of whom are immortal entities connected to the natural world, emotions, and metaphysical concepts. As far as the Syndicate can tell, there are no significant differences between gods and demons aside from what they call themselves. Their magical signatures are the same. Aren't we uh, concerned about the population of divine beings? We do usually warn agents against contacting gods and deities directly. Unfortunately, that's not an option here. This entire realm is made up of gods and deities. It is paramount that you all reveal only what is necessary about your origin. The gods you meet will very likely be able to peer through the veil if they are given a reason to do so. So do not give them a reason. Zion stares over at Lumira when Artemis says that. Of all the other causes of concern, the most concerning thing that he has witnessed is time. He's seen a lot of other strange things, but the manipulation of time for all of his long service, that's the one that he thinks of and is concerned about. Lumira peeps that and arches a challenging eyebrow towards Zynan kind of as an invitation, as if you have something to say to me, but keeps it to herself. But you do get that look, and you know that's exactly what she's thinking. 
He just purses his lips and looks down to the table. Sayer senses this tension. <laughs> He's lived long enough as a wallflower amidst everyone in trance, and especially at this strike team, to know that there's something brewing and a distraction, a distraction is needed. Uh, hand. I understand the protocol set by the Fate's Handbook about interaction and interfacing with celestial entities, gods, metaphysical concepts. What form shall we take? Would we, are we to blend among them? No, you are not assigned godhood in this mission quite yet, but the sister realms are populated by powerful mortals known as cultivators who spend their long and storied lives striving to achieve immortality and ascend to godhood. The three of you will manifest as cultivators in the city of heaven. Not entirely unusual, as especially powerful and prestigious cultivators work within the city of heaven, though they are typically summoned there by divine edict. It would behoove you all to devise a proper cover story for how a trio of cultivators managed to get into the city of heaven without attracting unnecessary attention. Permission to speak freely, and Artemis. Granted. What is so interesting about our team that we are the ones that not only get to operate as a trio, but also take on a mission like this? Is there something that I'm missing here? Nothing at all. You have ranked up. The Oracle flares and interrupts Artemis. Well, I think Faith feels bad for you. Artemis looks at the Oracle who interrupted her. Sayer stares at the Oracle. That has never happened. You do not interrupt Artemis. It continues to float and bob like an iridescent eight ball. Sorry, hand. Lumera sits up a little bit straighter. Whatever the reason, it is the prime Oracle that gives directives. Those directives come specifically from fate. Sorted via her will, I am only the one who gives you the briefing once I've received it from the Prime Oracle. It is not up to me to say why you, why now, why this. But if I may speak freely, it does seem that there is perhaps some of the Chosen One's spirit still lingering within the future and destiny of this team. The mention of her title, Lumira, coils back a little bit. If you're staring at her close enough, you can see it's almost like she got dumped with a bucket of ice water. She just sinks a little bit in her seat. Doesn't say anything else. Sayer notices the silence. Here's his sister's title once again, and... Everything falters for a moment, but he can't. His lion-like tail swishes in attention, listening to the entirety of the briefing, interested in the lore, the wisdom that the hand bestows. He bites his lip. Understood. Hand. We will do our utmost to succeed on this mission, as fate wills. Unflinchingly, Zynan, not a heartbeat later, says, Trust in her will. Trust in her will. Trust in her will. Trust in her will. Artemis was watching the three of you very closely again, but again, just kind of looks at the oracle, folds her arms over their chest. Does it always do that? Not typically, and this is a behavior most irregular. Uh, Lumira, 
you've interfaced with our Oracle most. Um, have you noticed anything? To be completely honest, this is the first time I've ever seen it. What are you talking about? We've saw each other plenty of times in the wild, see? Yes, sweetheart. You'd use me to call people up from the syndicate when you were alone in your room. Mm-hmm. I'd drop more ball bearings into Ooh. the top of it. Like a bunch of them. Kind of like that stuff your mouth to keep you quiet. If you're chewing, you can't talk. It works. Yeah, that strange mechanical grinding noise persists. Artemis looks for a moment and then they write something down on like a small piece of paper on their desk. They don't say anything else, though. They just they make a note somewhere in their own dossier before I think they continue roll their shoulders back. So the uh, the story we need we need a story for mm, yes why we're there mm-hmm. yes the city of heaven is highly bureaucratic you should expect red tape hawkeye officials no one breathes in the city of heaven without it being noted down somewhere all of them report to Emperor Long Du the current ruler of the city of heaven and as far as the syndicate can tell the mortal realm of Yalon as well. It's unclear what the relationship between the City of Heaven and the Underworld is like, only that all mortals become ghosts and go to the Underworld after death. If I had to hazard a guess, the City of Heaven rules over mortals during their lifetimes, and the Underworld rules over them after their deaths. What about the, uh, the Mayday Call? The Mayday Call. Well, we'll see. And Artemis, I think, now uh, takes a single folded piece of prayer paper that's been sitting on her desk, kind of center stage. She picks it up, unfolds it, opens it, and says, Your mayday call comes from a god known as Huin Xiaochong. And it simply reads, Help. And Artemis shrugs. Uh, almost as though she was expecting more from it uh, and kind of just like for a moment presses her index finger and her thumb against the bridge of her nose and you kind of get the feeling that this new Mayday protocol has been taxing. That's uh, Kurt? Yes, it is Kurt. Given the scope of your mission, be prepared for anything. You may be gone hours, days, weeks. Sir, well... That's a definite lead, though. Someone named Xiao Chang. You can do that. Yes. It would be prudent for you to find them first. I can only imagine. Then I guess the best cover is the truth. We were summoned by Xiao Chang. Hmm. Clever, cowboy. Oh, that was delicious. But that does come to beg the question, what if you run into Xiao Chang? What will you say to them then? We will obviously cross the bridge when we get there. We can't really assume now. We have barely any information of the world right now. Other than, of course, what Han has given us. Okay. The Strike Team Nova will do what Strike Team Nova does best. Improvise. (laughs) Maybe some planning in between. Yeah. Artemis crosses her arms and you get that distinct, the, the pennant in your room, Sayer, kind of flashes into your mind, discipline, mm-hmm. as opposed to improvisation. <laughs> Carefully thought out, methodical plan. And, of course. Of course. Good. Final questions, Nova. 
It's not really much else I can question. I guess I just have to find out when I get there. Good. You're made of stronger stuff than you believe, Lumira. And Artemis kind of stands up, rolls her shoulders, gestures toward the teleportation sigil in the center of her office. Looks at Zaiden for a moment, as I think everyone is starting to get up, move, gather. Trust your gut. It's gotten you out of situations far more dire than what you'll find out there. And that is almost exactly what she said to you on your way into the Wild Sea. Always do. And, like, he's on a track. He gets up from the chair. He stands right next to the the portal, takes off his hat the same way he's done for every mission. Sayer grabs onto the hilt of his crescent blade, almost like a child grasping onto a safety blanket, and all he can muster up is a fire command hand and steps onto the teleportation dais. Agent Sayer. Sir. And Artemis gestures toward her desk to have a private word with you very briefly before you go. Yes, hand. Sayer's heart pounds as he sits there. She looks down at you, almost a head and a half taller, despite your strength and build. A piece of advice. If you only hunt shadows, you will feed no one. Not your strike team, and not yourself. Go on. Sayer's bright blue eyes widen for a moment as his tail swishes with anxiety. Yes, hand. He gets up, walks over to the dais. And the last thing that you hear from Artemis before a pillar of light erupts around all of you is a small, almost quiet prayer out of her mouth. Come back together. And then she's gone. And on that, magic surges around your party. You can feel your atoms breaking apart painlessly, rearranging themselves in accordance to fate's will. There is a bloom of color, a swell of sound, a great breaking wave of sensation. And then Artemis's office vanishes. And as your eyes adjust, you find yourselves in the middle of the city of heaven. And it is completely empty. This episode was edited by Marissa Ewing of Hemlock Creek Productions. Our original intro theme music is by Jonathan Charles. Transplaner RPG is supported by our incredible Patreon precepts. Folks pledge to our highest tier on Patreon. A massive thank you to Stardiers, Jordan, Derek Davidson, Phil, Mark J, Astrid, Spencer, Lyle and Peanut, Rose, Alex, The Bow System, Cassidy, Lex, Charles, and Cora Eckert. Pledge to our Patreon today for as little as $3 a month to unlock exclusive news, character sheets, GM notes, and even the chance for your tabletop OC to cameo in our show. Until next time, Transplay Nerds!